This Architecture podcast is sponsored by Adelaide. Remember where's Waldo? He was 100% viewable, but still awfully hard to find. Your digital ads are like Waldo. Viewable, but in a sea of distractions. You need to move beyond viewability. Adelaide helps brands like Mars, Audi, Colgate, and the NBA measure media quality and drive better performance by optimizing campaigns programmatically with attention data. Adelaide's metric, AU, is available at nearly every major DSP and SSP, making it easy to leverage attention metrics. Get a free Waldo was viewable t-shirt at adelaidemetrics.com slash Waldo. Welcome to the Architecture Podcast. This is Ari Papero. We have a special episode this week. Um, so Eric's off, and I am joined today by Christoph Renazek, who has been in the news quite a bit as the CEO and founder of Adalytics. Um, so I'm really excited about our conversation. Thanks for being here, Christoph. Thanks for having me, Ari. Um, so, so quick housekeeping. So we're doing this episode a little bit differently. We're not going to do a news segment because we're recording it early, um, but we're introducing a new segment after the interview with Christoph called Justify Your Existence. And in Justify Your Existence, we're going to talk to young, early ad tech startups and find out why they exist. Uh, it should be fun. Okay, so let's just dive right into this. So, Christoph, you seem to have come out of nowhere, no one heard of you, and suddenly you're in the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, you're public enemy number one over in Mountain View. Uh, what, who are you, and what is Adalytics? Thanks, Ari. Um, Adalytics is a platform that's supposed to give media buyers, brands, and agencies transparency and control over the media supply chain. So we try to democratize and a sophisticated data science analytics capabilities for different media buyers. And we do this primarily by ingesting log file data from TSPs, such as Beeswax. We, we do work with people who use Beeswax. All right, love the also, Beeswax shout out. <laughs> we also combine data from you know measurement tags that we give to media buyers on open web or programmatic or CTD, as well as what we call orthogonal data enrichment. So for example, when media buyers are buying you know ads on different sites and apps, we try to give them the ability to combine their own data with data they get from their own CRMs, from sales data, from information about the corporate ownership of different publishers. So if someone wants to ask how much of my budget went to, you know, um, DEI kind of objectives, how much of my budget went to the various ESG scope three objectives, how much of my budget may have gone to me for advertising publishers, we try to make answering those questions extremely quick and easy so that even a non-technical, you know, CMO or VP of media can answer those questions very, very quickly. Okay, that makes sense. So, so it sounds kind of like a specialized data warehouse, like a data warehouse optimized for advertising questions. That's exactly right. And we overlay an interface on it. So that's, it's not, it shouldn't look like a data warehouse to the end user. It should look like a dashboard where they can ask questions and stuff like that. We're also working on incorporating LLMs so that instead of having to, you know, like click around in the dashboard, you can literally just ask, like, tell me what percentage of my budget went to MFA. LLM converts that into a SQL query, you get an output. That sounds awesome. Uh, so this is a business. You're not a nonprofit or a crusader for the internet, open internet. You're, you're running a business. That's correct. Yeah. So, um, you know, we work with brands and agencies, both, you know, we have a few Fortune 500 clients, public sector government advertisers, et cetera. And our approach is, you know, we try to service those clients, but during our work with them, from time to time, we identify sort of new or emerging issues, potential sources of risk to their you know, media investment to return on um, investment or brand safety. And when we encounter those issues, 
we ask the brand or the client, you know, hey, is this consistent with your expectations? You know, is this something that you're expecting? And if they tell us it's not, you know, sometimes we go in and do some research. We try to kind of really explore the issue in depth. And there are a few occasions when we do this exercise that we identify that these issues are not just, you know, specific to one or two or three of our clients, but they're systemic. They affect, you know, many brands, many agencies, et cetera. And in those situations, what we do is we try to put out sort of public thought leadership in the form of these reports, which is designed not just to help, you know, our clients or our brands, but the broader kind of buy side community, all brands and all agencies. And sometimes when we do that, we also work with, you know, with journalists from different news outlets that kind of try to convey that. But to answer your original question, no, we're strictly a business that just happens to have a very active research kind of component. So I, I think people want to hear about the research and that's, I want to really dive into it. And, um, you know, I know to your credit, you've uh, sent me, you know, 100 page detailed PDFs with all the methodology. And my reaction was like, hey, let's just get a podcast. We can explain this. Uh, so um, so there have been two blockbuster reports over the last month or so, the, both targeting uh, actions by YouTube. The first was a uh, allegation that buying YouTube video through Google ads resulted in videos being ads being shown in um, bad ad slots, so muted ad slots, non-viewable ad slots, definitely not what, what I think the buyers expected to be buying. And the second one, which came out just uh, this week in the New York Times, alleged that YouTube was both showing non-children's ads to children and potentially acting in a way that could cause children's data to leak, which would be potentially a violation of COPA. Do I characterize those two stories accurately? Yeah, I think so. I think just one kind of key qualification is, you know, we don't assert or even make any statements about, you know, COPPA violations. I'm not a lawyer. You right, of course. Legal advice. We just provide observations of what we've seen in empirical data, but we're not lawyers and we can't give legal advice or comment on COPPA. Okay, so let, let's start with the children uh, story, the, the story. Do you want to give us your, your quick summary of what you found? Yeah, sure. So... Um, this report that we published in August and the one in June, they're kind of intertwined because all of it started because we were um, a while back. We were working with one of our clients and we were reviewing you know, their data from uh, YouTube media buys, from a YouTube investment. And there was just a number of things that we saw there that were kind of like, you know, it raised some question marks. And so we flagged these to the client. We asked them, you know, is this consistent with your expectations for this particular media buy? And they told us, no, these are not consistent. And so then we started kind of digging in more and more deep. And we realized that, you know, A, that this seemed to be what we call a systemic issue. So it was affecting multiple of our clients. And it also appeared to just, you know, when we, we visited websites and YouTube, and et cetera, this seemed to affect a lot of different brands and a lot of different agencies. And so what we did is we started to research it even more in depth. And then with this most recent report, the one that we published, you know, there was two New York Times articles. The kind of issue at hand was that, you know, brands appeared to have some of their YouTube ad campaigns on YouTube delivering on these channels which are labeled as made for kids like Choo Choo TV, you know, Disney Junior, Coco Mama, et cetera. And, you know, some of those brands and agencies, when they were structuring these media buys, they were layering various, you know, kind of targeting capabilities, audience segments, demographics, I think retargeting in some cases. And so these were not contextual ad buys. They were more so, you know, using kind of various forms of kind of user audience segment kind of targeting capabilities. And it was just unclear to us, like, how is it possible that these ads are serving on made for kids channels, given that there's not supposed to be any form of personalized advertising on made right. for kids channel. 
Yeah, that's right. So uh, some background here, and I think Ad Exchanger was really instructive uh, with the explanation that they gave, which was several years ago, YouTube came to an agreement with the FTC that uh, that not only would they not use behavioral targeting on children, they would also treat anyone watching made-for-kids content as if they were a child. So that was specifically um, the policy of YouTube under Susan Wojcicki. Um, so you're saying that people were behavioral, adults were behaviorally targeted and then shown adult-oriented ads on children's content. Yeah, or in some cases they were like using demographic targeting, so they weren't necessarily just targeting adults, but they were targeting specifically with audience segments, like you're targeting you know, avid investors or AWS cloud architects. Theoretically, there could be a very precocious 10-year-old who's an <laughs> avid investor. So, you know, kids these days are really smart and ambitious. So, but the, you know, the other kind of point is, you know, we talk to you know, the brands and agencies that we work with and we ask them, you know, how do you view this from the perspective of, you know, return on ad spend or return on media spend? Because that's kind of one of our, you know, kind of guiding questions. A lot of brands care about that. And for them, they said, you know, A, the majority of them, you know, unless you're kind of like a Lego or Mattel type brand, they don't want to be on these made for kids channels. And right, that's right. because they don't think it's, you know, th those channels can drive a lot of click-through activity, but generally they don't see much conversion activity. You know, people buying a mortgage or a credit card or a car after clicking on a choo-choo TV hosted ad. And secondly, you know, some of the brands, at least, they express concerns about whether that puts them themselves into kind of a um, you know, legal, regulatory, ethical, or reputational bind. You know, there was... In, I think, 2018 or 2016, there was a bunch of really major brands like McDonald's, Mars, and Unilever, a bunch of brands that sell kind of sugary food products or, or, you know, fast food. And those brands signed this public pledge called the CFBAI, the Consumer Food and Beverage Advertising Initiative. And this was basically a self-declared public pledge to, you know, to Congress, to the public, to regulators, to the White House, that they would avoid advertising to children, you know, they wouldn't serve uh, sugary product ads to children. So for them, you know, beyond potential, whatever kind of legal considerations, it's just a matter of their brand positioning, you know, and ethics and stuff like that. They don't want to be adjacent to that kind of thing. Right. The whole thing is very, is very touchy. So the, what was the methodology they used to discover this? Was it log files? It was two things. So we always do what we call closed source and open source and intelligence sources. Closed sources, you know, we get access to data directly from the media buyer, from, you know, their DD360 or Google ads or other kind of instances. And we can see, you know, how was this campaign structure? What were the targeting segments? What were the targeting profiles? Was there contextual or just audience-based targeting? Was there retargeting or remarketing being deployed? And then where did the ads serve? And then we can see, you know, when the ads were served on specific channels, there's a way you can check is a given channel labeled as made for kids equals true or made for kids equals false, you know? So we focused really on the subset of channels where the platform itself was declaring that this channel was made for kids equals true. That's the, the closed source kind of approach. The open source approach is when we try to identify, like, is this just affecting our clients or is this a systemic issue? Is we literally just, you know, went to a bunch of these channels and just observed for, for a little bit of time, you know, which brands, which agencies were having ads served there. And lo and behold, we found, you know, a huge portion of the Fortune 500. I think all six media agency holding companies, you know, all of them were having their ads pop up on these made for kids channels. So obviously I can't speak to all those guys because I don't know where they're targeting parameters or intentions. That's the open source component. But we can at least say that this appears to be affecting a lot of people. And that's why we thought this would be in the public interest to kind of raise awareness. And what was this? 
And what is the um, potential issue around data leakage? Because you, I think you saw that there were potentially um, pixels or other uh, ad ad tech technologies involved on these children's channels. Yeah, that's a that's a great question. So the the thing that we notice is that a lot of times, you know, in the data that we get from directly from brands, there's a lot of click through activity. There's an enrichment for click through activity on videos that are marked as you know for toddlers or for babies or etc. And so when you know a putative child or viewer of a made for kids video clicks on an ad, they come to the advertiser's website. A lot of advertisers, unless they're like a Lego or a Mattel, they're not really expecting young kids to be visiting their websites. And they don't appear to show, you know, that kind of consent mode. It was like, does your parents, you know, give consent to, you know, for this child's data to be processed, stored and shared, et cetera. They don't really know or expect that they to put up that modal. And so the inadvertent consequence of that is that if a you know, toddler accidentally clicked on an ad from a car brand or something on Chichu TV, they go to that car brand's website, that car brand doesn't show a consent model, and they put the user in both first-party audiences, like HubSpot, Salesforce, Pardot, right. Adobe Audience Manager, and they also put it through like third-party data processors like Facebook, Pixel, TikTok, Pixel, et cetera. So part of our report, you know, the question that we asked in the title of the report was, are YouTube advertisers inadvertently harvesting data from millions of children, right? Yeah. We could see this pattern appear over and over and over. I think it was like 99% of the, the brand's ads we saw in these kids' videos, like the 99% of them would not ask for a consent model from parents, and they would put users in these kind of first-party and third-party audience segments. That was so, the concern. So if I'm just going to boil down what you're saying, right, the, the first allegation, um, which seems to have a lot of evidence, is that non-child ads are being shown on child channels. The second allegation is that those ads are getting there because of behavioral targeting, which YouTube says it doesn't do. In both cases, these are adults seeing ads for adult products on child channels. Uh, so those are the first two allegations. Uh, am, I, am I good so far? With some qualifying points, yes, that's the high level. So then the, the third allegation is that if someone clicks through on those ads, it potentially raises risk for the advertiser because they're not expecting that person to be a child and they could be uh, executing data collection methods which would not be appropriate for children. However, the fourth piece of this would be, are children seeing adult ads? And is there any allegation to the, is there any evidence to that? So when you pull reports from a Google Ads or TV 360 campaign, there's no kind of demographic reporting on, you know, users under the age, I think, 13 or 18. Like they show demographic age segments, you know, 18 to 24, 24 to 30, et cetera. But there's no one for like people under 18. Where there is reporting is for people who are unknown. There's like age unknown, gender unknown, et cetera. And so we do see that sort of unknown segment appearing in some of these demographic reports. Ostensibly or possibly, those could be, you know, these, these so-called, you know, the, the children watching this. What was interesting to me is there was a report put out by um, kind of a, a British public kind of regulator or a public sector entity in the UK where they examined the issue of how children interface with the YouTube platform. And what they found was, A, the majority of children, when they use YouTube, they don't do it through the YouTube Kids app, the dedicated Kids app. They do it through their regular YouTube app or website. And secondly, the majority of them do it in an, in, in an assigned out state. They don't log into Gmail or their parents' Google account. They're assigned out, like incognito. Yeah. So that would be kind of consistent with that. 
So if you're if we establish that adult ads are being shown on children's content, and we establish that children may be watching the children's content non-logged in, you can draw the conclusion that some of those ads might be shown to children, and therefore some of those clicks might be children, and then therefore marketers may have a bunch of children's data in their CRM database. Uh, I'm just kind of trying to put it all together. Uh, so a VP of advertising at Google named Dan Taylor um, put out a thread on Twitter, X, whatever you want to call it, supposedly rebutting your uh, study. I want to go through this and rebut his rebut or talk about his rebut. First of all, Dan, I, I don't know what's the deal, but you're really not good at threading stuff. Uh, so you you have six facts. Uh, he, uh, this, it starts out with like, today the New York Times covered a flawed study by analytics, the second time they produced faulty research about Google advertising this summer. Here are six facts about how we protect kids on YouTube that analytics gets completely wrong or ignores. Then it follows with nine facts, and the nine facts are out of order. So Dan, come on, man, get your Twitter in order. All right, so we're going to go through these one at a time. Number one, we don't personalize ads to kids ever, and we treat everyone who watches made-for-kids content as a child, regardless of their age. True or false? I won't say true or false. I can ask a qualifying question. Okay. So my question I would ask to the gentleman is, could they please be very explicit in what is personalized advertising, what is audience-targeted advertising, what is behavioral advertising? I'd like to get some very precise clarity beyond the overlap of these definitions, whether they're distinct, you know, the mechanisms. And secondly, we would like some clarity how it's possible for a campaign that's, you know, 100% targeted using audience segments or retargeting to serve on Made for Kids channels. Right. So, so we don't personalize ads to kids. You could parse that as when we know you are a child, we do not use behavioral targeting on you. So maybe that's true. We don't know. There's no evidence against that. But then the second part, we treat everyone who watches Made for Kids content as a child. Um, your evidence seems to be strongly uh, rebutting that. So now I'm going to go, I'm going to pass number five and four to go to number two. Uh, it says, number two, we built YouTube Kids as a dedicated app designed from the ground up to be a safer experience for kids to explore with tools for parents and caregivers to guide their journey. The YouTube Kids app has never had any personalized ads either. Um, it, did you, does any of your research touch on YouTube Kids? Is there any evidence that that statement might be questionable? Like I said earlier, we focused really on the YouTube kind of regular adult app, if you can describe it that way, just because there was prior research to suggest the majority of young children, at least in the UK, when they use YouTube, they're doing it through the yeah. regular adult app rather than the kids one. So Dan may have a point on number two. There's two kind of additional, just interesting points to note. So on the YouTube Kids app, to my knowledge, the ads are not clickable. So a user of the YouTube Kids app, when they get served a video ad, they cannot click through and go to the advertiser's website. Right, that's great. On the adult or regular YouTube app, when a video ad is served on a channel that is labeled as made for kids equals true, those ads are clickable. That is kind of where some of this, you know, data leakage that you alluded to, you know, could be occurring to. And it's interesting that the kind of the mechanism through which it's set up, it's different. That the, the ability to not click or click on these respective environments, even when both of them are ostensibly, you know, made for kids. Yeah, it sounds like YouTube should be treating made for kids content exactly the way they do on the kids app, but they're not. Number three, once again, this is Dan Taylor speaking. Made for kids content has ads, but we restrict the types of products that can be advertised, e.g. no ads for video games or media unsuitable for children, no ads about dating and relationships, no ads for food or beverage. That's interesting. So he's not saying that it's impossible to show a Jeep ad or a finance ad. It, he's He's kind of saying that 
it is possible to see an ad for one of those categories. So during our research, during the open source phase of the research project, we you know, tracked what sorts of ads are being shown on these made for kids channels. We saw ads that some would describe as violent or graphic. There were ads showing a man in a car, it's submerged in a river and he's drowning, being served on a video where it's lullabies to put your baby to sleep. Oh my God. Um, there was an ad showing soldiers running with sniper rifles and getting like bombs exploding around them, being served on a video that's like songs for, for, for kids, you know? Right. So insofar as we think that maybe, you know, it's not conducive to children's mental and developmental well-being to be exposed to such content at a very young age, that raises some concerns. Secondly, we also, for a lot of the brands and products that we saw that were advertising as made for kids channels, you know, we went to their websites and we observed, you know, what are the terms of service for those products? You know, to my knowledge, for most credit cards and mortgages, you have to be legally of age, 18 years or older, to buy the product. So it raised to the question of, you know, why were insurance brands, credit card brands, banks, et cetera, having their products advertised in a context where the majority of users might not be legally able to use that product. As a prime example, we looked at Google and YouTube's own ad campaigns. They were running YouTube campaigns promoting, you know, YouTube TV, NFL Sunday Ticket, Google Chrome Enterprise, uh, Google Workspace, a bunch of them. I think there was a spot of different uh, ad campaigns promoting Google's own products. For at least three of them, when we went to the terms of service for you know, YouTube TV, NFL Sunday Ticket, I think, or one of those other products, it specifically says in the terms of service, you must be 18 years or older to right. purchase this product. So again, like obviously that's YouTube, NFL or whatever. It's not a graphic, it's not violent for the child to see, but it's raises some questions about you know, the adjacency. Yeah, this all brings up the general flaw where if you ban one thing, you're probably missing 10 other things. Just like a simple blacklist, oh, you can't show video ad, games for videos or food to kids. That's just not really an effective strategy in a programmatic environment. Uh, okay, number four from Dan. Google does not share with advertisers what content or video a person was watching when they click on an ad. That means advertisers never know if a click came from someone watching made-for-kids content regardless of their age. Okay, I get the point. That means that it, this this... Pro data leakage problem. What they're saying is the advertiser has plausible deniability. The click came from a made-for-kids ad, but how would they know? They wouldn't know, so they could treat them sort of as any visitor to their website and do whatever they want. Is, is, does that pass your uh, smell test? Quite qualifying points. The first one is, you know, we talked to media buyers and we asked them, you know, do you want to have the ability to know like a kind of a Boolean flag of, you know, a UTM parameter or whatever request or something that would indicate that the user is coming from child-directed content. And the vast majority of media buyers that we spoke with, they said they would like some kind of communication in the event of an ad click-through that the viewer coming to their website or their app is the viewer of me for kids content. That's the first right. point. The second point is, you know, a lot of brands, uh, particularly the ones we work with, they employ sophisticated kind of bidding or ad optimization strategies. Some of them, you know, for example, use performance maps. Sure. And so the issue is that if you have an algorithm that is potentially optimizing to click-throughs, and some of those click-throughs, while human, are coming from children or toddlers, you may be effectively optimizing for a KPI that is not very tightly correlated with conversions and actual business outcomes. You might get a lot of clicks by optimizing for these child-directed, you know, clicks, but you're not going to get a lot of business conversions, right? So that's the second thing is, what is the effect of potentially low quality or altered data sets in terms of how it informs a brand's media investment strategy? 
Yeah, I, I think the the general theme I'm hearing of when I it, Dan is saying things like, "Well, um, we're not breaking the rules," and you're saying, "Regardless, this is not what advertisers want." Um, so number five. Um, advertisers with a single click can choose to opt out of made for kids content. The opt out called content suitable for families prevents advertisers from having their ads run alongside this content. Analytics doesn't appear to know this. Ooh, it's getting spicy. Uh, <laughs> so is this a checkbox in Google ads or in uh, DV360? Our report specifically describes and talks about that button. Um, there were brands that we work with who have used that button. And yeah. even though they have used that exclusion, the content suitable for families, we still observe delivery of their ads on made for kids channels. So unless there was a software update that happened very recently, I'd be curious to see how that was possible. Furthermore, we think that made for kids content and content suitable for families, both kind of semantically as well as technically as suggested by the data are not necessarily one-to-one, -one, right? You can have something that's you know totally suitable for a family to watch, but is not directly intended or made for kids, right? Yeah. And so, you know, insofar as brands don't want to only be serving on violent MMA <laughs> YouTube fighting <laughs> videos, there are some questions about, you know, is this the appropriate descriptor or that? But furthermore, like even if there was this one-click exclusion, let's say it did work, the fact that all six agency holding companies are among the biggest, most sophisticated media buyers in the world all had multiple clients where adult brands served on those made-for-kids videos, you know, that raises some concerns about you know how how thoroughly was this communicated to them? A priori, yeah, and also the I think your the key point, which is that is not say made for kids. It's as suitable for families, which is very different. Uh, number six, cookies did not equal ad personalization. Cookies are permitted under COPA for statistical reporting, spam, and fraud detection, et cetera, et cetera. They're critical to YouTube. I'm, I'm paraphrasing. Um, so um, I think that's accurate. The cookies are allowed under COPA. Um, so what would, did you specifically have an allegation around their misuse of cookies in this case? I think maybe there was a little bit of a misunderstanding. We, you know, our report is 200 plus pages. So right. we very explicitly say that A, there were personalized ads served on made for kids channels, and B, there were cookies that, according to Google's own terms of service, are described for advertising purposes. We never allege or make the sequitur that the two are correlated. We never say that these cookies are the ones that are used to power rad personalization. We just say there's two distinct sets of observations. You know, we know, for example, that there are other methods of maintaining a persistent user identifier, sorry, for, for targeted ads. You could use uh, a request tag. You could use a fingerprint. You could use, you know, IP address, for example. There's many orthogonal mechanisms. This was just two separate sets of observations. And we even had an explicit section called caveats and limitations, where we make it very clear that we're not asserting that the cookies were used for ad personalization. So I would encourage any reader or commentator on our research to spend some time perusing the content thoroughly. Okay. Let's go to point number seven on Dan's list of the six things that Adelaide gets wrong. Uh, <laughs> though we just received the report, what we've reviewed shows no violations of our commitments to our privacy policies. Given analytic last report was debunked by two independent organizations, that would be IS and Double Verify. Uh, we do not put much stock in the accuracy of their research. This is just uh, ad hominem at this point. <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure you even, even need to respond. Let's we'll talk about let's talk about Double Verify and IS next. So I'm going to skip this one. Um, number eight. The New York Times, who was given early access to the report, couldn't even verify the bulk of analytics claims. It does not corroborate. Uh, their accusations, and in fact, found the opposite: no violation of COPA, no personalization of ads to kids, no improper use of cookies. 
Um, is that uh, is that your understanding of what the New York Times did? I'm not entirely clear on that, but keep in mind also that uh, I believe the, the blog that you're currently reading was published after the first New York Times article dropped and not after the second one. The second one references studies where I think half a dozen different independent media buyers in the U.S. and in Europe all asserted that they saw evidence of 100% yeah. audience-targeted ad campaigns delivering on made-for-kids channels. To my knowledge, there was even a nonprofit in the U.S. who ran a test ad campaign where they would spend $10. Yeah. 100% of those $10 were using audience segments and targeting you know, avid investors or such, and they still saw a delivery of ads on made-for-kids channels. So, again... Right. The, the, the crux of the real red line here is uh, adult ads being behavioral targeted on kids' content. Advertisers probably don't want that. Um, most definitely would like to avoid that uh, in many cases. Um, and the content not being suitable for kids. And then separately, the second part of the problem, which is probably there was some exposure to children who were not logged in who were looking at that content. That's kind of, I'm just going to kind of repeat it so we all kind of boil it down. Number nine, Adelaide's report has no substance. <laughs> Uh, and tries to make a gotcha when there is none. Okay, fine. Thanks. Thanks for your opinion there. Um, this is the, I want to get your opinion on this. We offered to meet with them weeks ago and heard crickets. So they, uh, there was a gentleman who works at Google who emailed me, I think, in uh, July. It said the end of June or when it was in July. Uh, asked about the uh, GDP research that we put out with the Wall Street Journal. He did not make any references or discussions about the copper research that was published okay. recently. Or so not the copper, but the, you know, the Made for Kids research that was published recently. Uh, we haven't had any outreach, to the best of my knowledge, about that. Furthermore, in November of last year, there was an outreach attempt from our side to a gentleman and director of ad quality at Google because we were seeing uh, major brands having their ads served on pornographic websites through DD360 and Google oh. AdSense, as well as on Iranian websites. To the best of my knowledge, Iran is under comprehensive U.S. Treasury sanctions. We still have not received uh, a response to that outreach attempt, and it's you know currently August, and that was in November. So yeah, we're looking forward to these big tech companies are are totally non-responsive, and they always love to accuse their critics of not uh, engaging with them. Just to be clear, of course, healthy dialogue is something that should be encouraged. A good faith dialogue is something that should be encouraged. And ultimately, you know, what we want to do is prioritize what's best for, for brands and for agencies, right? That's why we ask them all these questions. You know, is this consistent with your expectations? Why are these controls working the way that you expect them to? And we think that in a way we're doing something that is beneficial, not just to the you know, buyers, but potentially even to the platforms. Because you know, they get kind of informed feedback on you know what works for them and what doesn't work for them. And so insofar as we can have kind of a healthy, good faith discussion about that in a public forum where everyone can kind of make their own decisions, come to their own conclusions, that's really something that we strive for. Our reports, for example, they are long. We try to have very detailed methodology sections. Sometimes they're 50 pages, you know, methodology. And the idea behind that is that we want anyone, such as yourself, if you so desired, you could independently reproduce this research, these analyses, and come to your own conclusions and make you know, your own determinations of what's consistent with your own media investment strategies. That's something that we do not just on behalf of our existing clients, but the broader buy-side community. Yeah. So um, we spent a lot of time on uh, this, this children's report. I want to spend a significantly briefer amount of time on your previous report. Um, so um, in, I guess, July, you published with the Wall Street Journal. Um, the uh, evidence that when people were buying YouTube ads, they were actually showing their ads 
outside of YouTube. And that that's fine. That was sort of disclosed. But the issue was that the quality of those placements was significantly uh, hampered versus what people might expect in a true view YouTube scenario. I think the interesting part of the story um, is the reaction, both Google's sort of non-denial denials and the fact that uh, Google's partners, Double Verify and IAS, were pretty vehemently in their support. I kind of want to focus in on that part of it, if that's all right with you. Sure. Two points there. So the first one, as you mentioned, the core finding in the research was there are these two types of video ad formats. One is called outstream and one is called in-stream. In this the data that we analyzed, we were specifically looking at these so-called in-stream skippable ad placements, which based on our observations appear to be serving in outstream muted and in some cases autoplaying environment, which according to the documentation that the platform itself provides, misdeclaration of outstream as in-stream is a form of invalid traffic, IBT. This is a direct citation from their, you know, from their documentation. And so our core question, you know, was when we talked to media buyers again, we asked them, you know, when you buy an in-stream skippable ad pack, do you expect ads to be serving on? And we showed them screenshots and examples of that. And they all told us that, no, this is not consistent. So that was kind of the first core issue. There was, of course, other issues. You know, some of the ads appear to be partially obscured. Some of them appear to serve on, you know, foreign publishers that may, have, may be under U.S. Treasury sanctions, which, you know, introduces compliance problems. And there was also issues of, you know, potentially there being a higher view-through rate when an ad is served in a muted outstream video player rather than through an in-stream one. The second point that you raised, you know, we think that it's independent, or it's important, sorry, for independent measurement vendors and verification companies to have their own sources of telemetry, their own sources of truth, and et cetera. So we try to approach our studies in a way where, you know, we corroborate data using orthogonal methods, orthogonal methodologies. We don't rely on just what a platform or a DSP or an ad server tells us. We look at other sources of data, whether that's crawlers, a measurement tag, et cetera, and we try to cross-reference those, right? And furthermore, one additional kind of point of maybe differentiation for us as a platform, as a company, is we have a very strict policy where we only accept payment, financial resources, from buy-side entities. We do not accept payment from you know, ad tech platforms, ad tech intermediaries, et cetera, because we think that might create a situation where it's difficult for us to prioritize the best interest of the buy side. And that you know, allows us basically to, when we identify what we call systemic issues or systemic risks to brands, media investments, that we are unencumbered in our ability to A, attribute the specific point of risk, and B, to disseminate public research which conveys our findings. Yeah, uh, I, I think that that's very well said. And I, I think focusing on the buy side certainly um, helps you be sort of, you know, thorough and unbiased. Um, but I guess that kind of does sort of lead into the question about verification. Um, so uh, after you put out this this research, um, and so in some cases there were screenshots, right, and video plays, like you could actually see these ads in bad spots. Um, so kind of a smoking gun, you know, the size of the fire could be debated, but um, Google first says, Google's response, I'm going to just absolutely boil it down. They said something like, yeah, sure, but we guarantee 90% viewability. That was <laughs> kind of their response, right? And the reaction from people like me was like, well, we didn't say anything about viewability. That wasn't even, that wasn't their claim at all. Um, and we didn't realize that when you said it was true view, what you meant was it's true view in stream on youtube.com and it's 90% viewable everywhere else. 
So I, I think that they sort of, in a sense, confirmed some of what you, you had already said. Um, is that right? One of the things our original report in June mentions is the word in-stream and outstream. We mentioned those words 274 times. The initial rebuttal that was put out by the company mentions those two words zero times. Exactly. They totally rebutted something that you didn't claim. So that wasn't the best. And, uh, and then there were issues of quality about muted and whether things are audible, right? And they didn't really address that either. So, so then, um, you know, Google has partnerships with the two leading verification companies. Um, I actually just, you know, last week on this podcast has had Lisa on from uh, Schneider from IESH give a great conversation. She addressed some of these issues a bit. Um, but they both came out to, um, you know, to defend Google. Um, I, I guess my question would be, I mean, obviously I see why they're doing it, but do they have the data or the evidence to make claims to defend Google in this case? Or are they, because I didn't see any real research from them that defended them. One kind of qualification question, when you saw the rebuttals posted by those companies, how many times were the words in-stream and outstream mentioned in the rebuttals? <laughs> right, right. Furthermore, to answer your original question, to the best of my limited knowledge, the vendors that you mentioned, they source their telemetry through a system called Ads Data Hub. It's a survey right. server transfer where data is sent from the platform that's ostensibly being audited to the verification vendors. And obviously, when you're getting data from another source, that precludes the ability for independent measurement, right? So our position is that's why we try to employ orthogonal strategies for data collection so that we can cross-reference of what it is declared data from a DSP or a platform with what is measured data, what is empirical data, right? That's always the thing that we do for, not just for walled garden platforms, but for open web, for CTV, et cetera. And as such, we just think that there is, you know, if you're measuring two different things, or one, one entity is measuring something and the other one is just receiving kind of measurements from someone else, that obviously can lead to discordance between the final outcomes. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think these companies have different types of integrations with different platforms. And in some cases, like Lisa was making the point that they scan every single TikTok video um, in real time. And I was pretty impressed by that. That's cool. Um, you know, that sounds like pretty robust uh, versus getting log files, you know, once every hour. It doesn't sound so robust. Um, OK, so awesome. So uh, what's next? Who are you taking down next? Is it we going to see some new headlines or uh, you going to take the rest of the summer off? We're quite busy now, obviously, servicing our clients' needs and try to help them, you know, optimize their ad campaigns and make sure that everything is going according to what they will. But we are working also on some other kind of systemic issues that we've identified. So we are looking at um, some other so-called, you know, walled garden platforms. There have been some concerns that we've we've identified in, in the data with those. Uh, we're also looking at issues of outstream and in-stream video inventory. Uh, being sold not not through you know uh, YouTube per se, but through other major SSPs. There appears to be um, some uh, yeah. preponderance of that. Oh, big surprise! Shocked, shocked, shocked. Yeah, and and also we're looking at some some research concerning sort of su supply fees. You know how much are DSPs and how much are SSPs taking in uh, sort of fees? You know we we published some research on that subject matter I think a year ago. Um, we now have sort of updated uh, kind of telemetry and insights on that project. And so we're looking to post an update with you know, sort of a lay of the land of what we're seeing. All right. That sounds, that sounds really exciting. We're going to have to have you back to go through those when they come out. Um, so, Chris, thank you so much for being here. This is super informative. 
We uh, please stay stay listening because we have our new segment, Justify Your Existence, showing uh, coming right after this, where we find out why a startup believes they could exist in this horrible ad tech ecosystem we've all built, and why they're dedicating their lives to that. That should be fun. Uh, so, Christoph, thanks again. This is a message from our sponsor. I'd like to introduce you to Publica by IAS, the award-winning CTV ad server trusted by some of the biggest streaming services and smart TV manufacturers globally. Publica helps a growing number of leading AVOD and fast services to power the programmatic ad break decisioning via products including a unified auction, server-side ad insertion, and a demand-agnostic ad server built from the ground up around streaming. Head to getpublica.com to find out how they help CTV publishers to grow their advertising revenues and provide streaming audiences with linear-like TV ad break experiences. Welcome to Marketecture's Justify Your Existence, where we ask early-stage ad tech and martech startups to tell us why we should care about what they're building. I am joined today by old friend Keith Petrie, who many of you probably know. Um, so Keith is the CEO and founder of Locker, um, and I want to hear what Locker does, even though Keith's told me 500 times. Uh, so let's start with the basics. How big is Locker in terms of employees? Where are you based, and how much have you fundraised? We are eight employees. We were founded during COVID, and so we are a quintessential pandemic startup that is fully distributed and remote, and we have raised to date just over $2.5 million. So, you know, break it down for me. What is, what is Locker actually do? I don't want to hear so much of the vision. I want to know what it actually does. Cool. We have two distinct products. They both complement each other, but they are independent of one another. In conjunction, they solve for the shift in advertising and consumer demands for control over his or her own data. So on the consumer side, straightforward, we have a product called Locker Mail, which is a publicly facing email address for users to filter out all the noise while still being able to benefit from discounts and organizing their shipping notifications and any relevant news. So it's like an email proxy kind of? Correct. We, we try to stay away from the word proxy publicly because not, uh, not everybody understands it, but yes. And I could sign up for that right now if I wanted to. Do you can go to lockermail.com and use it today to sign up for architecture like I did. All right. So you're not getting my emails? You're fil- are you filtering the uh, weekly newsletters? Well, let's say, you for example, that. I wanted to filter <laughs> a certain uh, newsletter by a mention of my company name or my personal name. I could do that. Cool. Okay. So that's the consumer product, is it, and that's free? Correct. That is free. Cool. Uh, check it out. Locker Mail. There's no E in Locker, right? It's L-O-C-K-R. Oh, I guess at this point, I should know better. Yes, it's L-O-C-K-R. We couldn't afford the E. Right. Okay. <laughs> Pandemic. I know how it is. Uh, okay. And then what's the uh, B2B product? So the B2B product is called Identity Locker. It is a suite of identity tools that are primarily built to benefit publishers, although it would be the exact same mechanisms for brands and retailers. They just aren't our number one focus right now. What we primarily do is we ensure the validity of an email address at the point of collection. This impacts publishers' top-line revenue as a result of not having a persistent identifier to pass within the bid stream or to use for subscriber marketing or audience development of anything In that regards, we gather consented data directly from the consumer on behalf of that publisher. It integrates seamlessly with any identity solution in the market today. We complement companies like UID2, LiveRamp, ATS, or any data cleanroom. We do not compete with them. We only want publishers to collect usable email addresses, what we refer to as true authentication. Okay, cool. So basically, you're spending all this work as a publisher getting someone to sign up for your newsletter or create a login or paywall, 
and then they put in a garbage email address or they put in a, a throwaway email address. Yeah, or more recently, they put in an Apple hide my email address. Right. So what do you do? How does that work uh, when you're integrated with a publisher? So there's a number of different points of integration, the most important one of which is the one you're referring to, which is our email verification API. Long story short, as soon as a uh, visitor of the website types in an email address, it pings our API with that input field, and we verify if it is a usable email address. We do that in a number of different ways. Uh, we don't share all of our intricacies, but the easiest way and the most obvious way is looking at the domain. Uh, there are tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of different domains that represent uh, non-persistent email addresses that are used by tools such as ABIME, Mailinator, Cloak, Burner Mail, and all of these, what we refer to as machine-generated email tools. We also look at pattern recognition and inputs. As an example, re at iCloud.com might actually be a real email address. Honestly, even Ari's moving company at iCloud.com might be a real email address, but HungryCheese744 at iCloud.com based off of pattern recognition may or may not. Uh, and we have a few other tricks up our sleeves as well to identify uh, machine-generated emails. How do you know my side hustle is a moving company operator? Uh, I'm it's all about the lead gen. Summer. <laughs> it's all about the lead gen and moved, moving. That's the key. Um, so what does a publisher do when they get your API response that says this isn't a good email, or this is a good email, but it's machine generated. Isn't it the consumer's choice to give an Apple ID? Yeah, so it's completely up to the consumer, but it's also completely up to the publisher who they want to permit to gain access in this value exchange that we refer to as the internet for the past 30 years. And so from our perspective, it's very equivalent to publishers that utilize ad block detection. Uh, if a publisher utilizes it, they are very used to articulating that value exchange to their visitor, and it's identical in terms of the communication process. Hey, visitor, we see what you're doing. We respect your uh, right, but if you want to access this content, you need to utilize, uh, you either need to turn off that ad blocker or you need to provide a real usable email address, your personal work email, et cetera. What's the interaction between the consumer side and the business side? Why do you need to offer locker mail in order to offer the uh, API? I mean, look, I'll give you the the non-political answer here. I'll just be straightforward. If I wanted to build a, another identity platform for publishers, brands, or retailers, which is perfectly in line with my background and my experience, we could build a very healthy, sustainable B2B SaaS business with decent margins, build up our ARR, and look for exit potential and other growth potential areas. But we see a larger opportunity and a change in the ecosystem to actually incorporate the consumer as a stakeholder. Because, you know, if you listen to anybody talk about the most important uh, participant in uh, the internet, it is the consumer. But I don't see a lot of the other ad tech companies on market architecture actually having a consumer product. Right, they don't. Um, so the when a consumer goes to a publisher and gets um, this whatever feedback that they're using a machine-generated email, are you using that as lead gen for people to try locker mail? Lead gen would be a strong approach because we do not require that any publisher promote locker mail uh, yeah. to their user or push anybody to locker mail. However, we do offer a single sign-on option for our users to streamline their experience on the internet and also enable them to control their consent and what data they do provision and share with each individual publisher, brand, or retailer. And when it comes to publishers, um, there's a big concern about their data and their data ownership. Uh, what data rights do you retain in the email addresses that are being validated? 
So it depends on your definition of data rights in that question. But for us, we are providing the consumer the tool and the mechanism for them to control their own experience online. We do not own or control or provision access to that data. If a consumer shows up to a publisher A and says, yes, I consent, all of that consumer's data is passed on to that publisher and they own it. In our identity locker, we actually support the integration of various other identity solutions out there, and we can pass that data on behalf of the publisher. Or if that publisher wants to push that data to a CDP that they might work with, we also enable that as well. We are just the platform that you know facilitates that transaction. I know the platform's your favorite word, by the way. <laughs> I have a lot of favorite words. Um, some I can't say on the podcast, but uh, what uh, what's, what traction do you have? Can you give any names of publishers that are case studies or just tell us what sort of traction you have? We're working towards some public case studies. We can say that uh, on both sides of our business, we see adoption. On the consumer side, we have tens of thousands of users. We're processing millions and millions of emails every single month, and we continue to scale. And on the publisher side, we see great adoption and understanding on behalf of publishers that are focused on first-party data collection and they're understanding that as a result of testing with us that 20 some odd percent on average of their registration data is actually not usable regardless of what identity provider they work with thereafter right okay last question um if your company was an animal what animal would it be man uh, well, I feel like what we have to do right now is educate the market and scream from the rooftops. So I guess my head immediately just goes to Lion King and the scene on top of the uh, Savannah just preaching. So Lion, you, do you know, I'd say about 60% of our interviews say Lion uh, or Tiger. Um, but, you know, I'm I, not unique. I don't at know least at least say. you gave it Lion King. You know, get, you put the scene out there. It's not just a random lion. It's a you know, king of lions. You painted a picture. That's what I, we all, we all appreciate. It. All the listeners appreciate that. All right, Keith, thank you so much for being our guest. It was a very interesting conversation. Appreciate you for having me. Thank you for subscribing to Marketecture. New interviews are added every week at Marketecture.tv and your favorite podcasting app.